Thank you for joining the podcast of Life Church in Perry, Georgia. Hey, friends, thanks for joining us for our podcast. I missed you last week. Uh, we had camp meeting. Man, did we have a great time. Uh, we had, uh, gosh, what did we end up with? I think 12 first time decisions for Christ. We had several rededications. We had four, I think, baptized in the Holy Spirit. We had several prayed for that received healing. Actually, I just got a call not too long ago of one of our dear saints that was supposed to go in and have a heart cath, but God healed her body. We rejoice in the goodness of God. It was a great camp meeting. We had several new people come to the church, and uh, we just we thank God for all that He has done and all that He is doing and all He's going to do here at Life Church in Perry, Georgia. We started several weeks ago on our expository teaching of the book of Romans. We missed last week, but we're going to pick up this week in Romans chapter 4. So if you have your Bibles, go with me to Romans chapter 4, and let's get into our teaching today. Romans chapter 4, beginning in verse number 1, says, What shall we say then? That Abraham, our father, has found according to the flesh. For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Now to him who works, the wages are not counted as grace, but as debt. But to him who does not work, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, His faith is accounted for righteousness, just as David also describes the blessedness of the man to whom God imputes righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord shall not impute sin. Does this blessedness then come upon the circumcised only? or upon the uncircumcised also. For we say that faith was accounted to Abraham for righteousness. How then was it accounted, while he was circumcised or uncircumcised? Not while circumcised, but while uncircumcised. And he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of the faith which he had, while still uncircumcised, that he might be with, that he might be rather the father of those who believe, though they are uncircumcised, that the righteousness might be imputed to them also, and the father of of circumcision to those not only are the circumcision, but who also walk in the steps of the faith which our father Abraham had while still uncircumcised. Father, we thank you for this word. We thank you that your word is powerful, sharper than a two-edged sword. Thank you, Lord, for the opportunity and the ability to teach your word. And thank you for the technology to spread your word that those who hear it may be blessed. Help me, Lord, to teach your word 
to say the things that you've laid on my heart, the things that I've studied to show myself approved, that those who hear it may be richly blessed. And we give you praise for it, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. So in our expository study of the book of Romans, we have discussed that Paul wrote this letter from Corinth in approximately 57 AD. We know that Paul is addressing a church in Rome that is made up both of Gentiles and Jewish believers. In chapter 1, the Apostle Paul addresses the whole congregation in this church. We know that the first 17 verses of Romans chapter 1 are considered Paul's introduction. And from verses 118 through chapter 320, Paul addresses the issue of humanity's defiance of God and their need for righteousness. Then, beginning in Romans chapter 3, verse 21 through Romans 5, 21, we are now looking at God's provision for salvation. In chapter 3, we begin to look at four main questions that the Apostle Paul asked. The first question was, what advantage has the Jew? The advantage the Jews had also became their condemnation. They were appointed as guardians over God's word, but they were not living according to it. The second question Paul then asked, what is the profit of circumcision? Circumcision is an issue of the heart, not of the flesh. Though the Jews were given the command to circumcise the flesh, God's desire for all is to be circumcised in our heart as a sign of being born again. The third question Paul then asks, are all men lost? The answer is yes. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And the fourth question then, how then are men justified? The answer, by God's grace. We are justified by grace, which means we do not deserve it. We are justified by faith, which means that we have, have to receive it believing on the Lord Jesus Christ. We are justified by the blood. This refers to the price that the Savior paid for you and I. We are justified by the power, the same power that raised Jesus from the dead. We are justified by God, who is the one that reckons us to righteousness. We are justified by works, not meaning that good works earn justification, but that they are the evidence of the one who has been justified. Now we come into chapter 4. We begin to pick up with the fifth main question that Paul asks. Does the gospel, the good news, the New Testament, agree with the teachings of the Old Testament? This is an important question, especially for the Jewish people. The Apostle Paul begins to show the complete harmony between both the New Testament and the Old Testament. 
Paul proves his point by referring to two of the greatest figures in Israel's history, Abraham and King David. God made a great covenant with both of these men. First was the Abrahamic covenant. In Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, it says, Now the Lord had said to Abraham, Get out of your country, from your family, and from your father's house, to a land that I will show you. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great, and you shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse him who curses you, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. This is a three-part covenant. The Abrahamic covenant is a three-part covenant. It's a covenant that deals with land for God's people. It's a covenant that deals with the descendants of God's people. And it's a covenant of blessing for God's people. And then we look at the Davidic covenant. We find this in 1 Chronicles chapter 17, verse 11 through 14. And it says, And it shall be, when your days are fulfilled, when you must go to be with your forefathers, that I will set up your seed after you, who will be of your sons, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build me a house, and I will establish his throne forever. I will be his father, and he shall be my son. And I will not take my mercy away from him, as I took it from him who was before you. And I will establish him in my house and in my kingdom forever. And this throne shall be established forever. This covenant follows the Abrahamic covenant for land and people, but it goes even further. It promises that David's house, his kingdom, and his throne will be established forever. And it is significant because it shows that the Messiah will come from the lineage of David and that he will establish a kingdom from which he will reign. So for the Jews, both of these men were both great witnesses for Paul's declaration here in Romans chapter 4. See, one lived centuries before the law was given, and the other, David, lived many years afterward. One was justified before he was circumcised, Abraham, and the other much after, King David. Knowing that the Jews loved to boast of Abraham as their father, Paul suggested going back to the story of Abraham to see what it says about justification. We pick up here in Romans chapter 4, verse 1. What then shall we say that Abraham our father has found according to the flesh? Let us first consider Abraham who all the Jews considered to be their forefather. What was his experience according to the flesh? What did he find concerning the way in which a person is justified? 
Well, in verse 2, Paul says, For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. See, if Abraham was justified by works, then he would have reason for boasting. He could pat himself on the back for earning a righteous standing before God. But this is utterly impossible. No one will ever be able to boast before God. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 and 9 says, For by grace we have been saved through faith and not of ourselves, but it is a gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. There's nothing in Scripture to indicate that Abraham had any grounds for boasting that he was justified by his works. Now, some might argue that James says that he was justified by works. How is this? James chapter 2 verse 21 says, Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered Isaac his son on the altar? Now we need to look at the meaning of what James is really saying. Abraham was justified by faith. Abraham believed in God's promise. It was 30 or more years later that he was justified or vindicated by works when he started to offer Isaac as a burnt offering to God in Genesis 22. See, this act of obedience proved the reality of his faith. It was an outward demonstration that he had been truly justified by faith, not by works. Verse 3 in Romans chapter 4 says, For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and was counted to him for righteousness. See, Paul asks a loaded question. He put the ball back in the Jews' court. He took them back to the beginning. In Genesis 15, 6, and it says, Abraham believed in the Lord, and he accounted it to him for righteousness. This says Abraham believed in the Lord and was accounted for him for righteousness. The moment that Abraham took God at his word and declared him righteous. Abraham did not do anything to earn this declaration. He just simply believed. This is the doctrine of justification through faith. God revealed himself to Abraham and promised that he would have numberless generations of people after him. Verse 4 says, Now to him who works, the wages are not counted as grace, but as debt. This brings us to one of the sublimest statements in the Bible concerning the contrast between works and faith in reference to the plan of salvation. Let's look at it this way. When a man works for a living and he gets his paycheck at the end of the week, he is entitled to his wages. He has earned them. He does not bow down before his employer, thanking him for his display of kindness and protesting that he doesn't even deserve the money. <laughs> Absolutely not. He puts the money in his pocket and goes home with a feeling that he has only been reimbursed for his time and labor. 
But that's not the way, it's not the way it is in the matter of justification. It's true, good works will not get you into heaven, but that doesn't mean that good works are not important. Scripture is very clear that faith without works is good, is as good rather, as no faith at all. Let me say that again. Scripture is very clear that faith without works is as good as no faith at all. So then one might ask, what kind of work should I be doing? Excellent question. There are many different ways to serve God. We need to first start by asking God to show us what He wants us to do. Next, we need to be on the lookout. If we keep our eyes and ears open, God will indeed show how to do our part for His world. He may want us to start off in the nursery. He may want you to feed the hungry or work at a shelter for homeless. He may want you to take a special action to get rid of sin with which you are struggling. He may want you to be a friend to one who is sad. No matter how He uses you, one thing's for certain. If you ask God to put, to put you to work, He will definitely do it. So going back to Abraham, Abraham believed God, Genesis 15. Genesis 22, he offered Isaac as a sacrifice. It wasn't the act of good works of offering Isaac. It was the fact that he believed God, thus he offered. Romans chapter 4, verse 5 says, But to him who does not work, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted for righteousness. As shocking as this may seem, the, the justified man is the one who, first of all, does not work. He renounces any possibility of earning his salvation. He, he disavows any personal merit or goodness. He acknowledges that all his best labors could never fulfill God's righteous demands. The man instead believes on whom him who justifies the ungodly. He puts his faith and his trust in the Lord. He takes God at his word. As we have seen, this is not a meritorious action. The merit is not in his faith, but the merit is the object of his faith. Notice Paul says he believes on him who justifies the ungodly. He does not come with a plea that he has tried his best and he has lived the gold by the golden rule, that he has not been as bad as other people. That type of justification does no good. No, this person comes as an ungodly guilty sinner and thus throws himself on the mercy of God. What is the result? That his faith is accounted to him for righteousness. Because we come believing instead of working, God puts righteousness to our account. Through, this, through the merits of the risen Savior, 
God clothes us with his righteousness and makes us fit for the kingdom of heaven. God sees us in Christ and accepts us on that basis. Justification, therefore, is for the ungodly, not for the good people that, that, that think that they don't need a Savior, that their good works are enough, that their family name is enough, that they, 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 they are not that bad of a person. Oh, Lord, help them people. Verse 6, just as David also described the blessedness of the man to whom God imputes righteousness apart from works. See, now Paul brings his second, second powerful witness, King David. Paul reminds the people in Rome that David speaks of the same truth as Abraham. Faith saves apart from the law. Those who oppose this great truth say we must satisfy the justice of God by our works. But here again we find God crediting righteousness to a Jewish forefather apart from his spiritual accomplishments. David was profoundly blessed with the knowledge of God's forgiveness. That is that justification does it assures us that we are forgiven david repeatedly put the concept of his feelings about god into songs and prayers in verse 7 and 8 the apostle paul says blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered blessed is the man to whom the lord shall not impute sin the, the psalmist said that the happy man is the sinner whom God reckons righteous apart from works. Look at verse 32, verse 1 and 2, whom Paul quotes. Psalm 32, verse 1 and 2 says, Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. Martin Luther, the great reformer, called the 32nd Psalm a Pauline Psalm. This Psalm teaches in no uncertain way that, that the same glorious doctrine of justification apart from human merit. Let me say that again. This Psalm, Psalm 32, teaches in no uncertain way the same glorious doctrine of justification apart from human merit. St. Augustine of Hippo had the words of Psalm 32 painted on a placard and placed at the foot of his bed where his dying eyes could rest upon them. So what did Paul say in these verses? First of all, he noticed that the, the David said nothing about works. Forgiveness is a matter of God's grace, not of man's efforts. Second, Paul saw that if God doesn't impute sin to a person, then that person must have righteousness standing before him. Finally, 
Paul saw that God justifies the ungodly. David had been guilty of adultery and murder, yet in these verses he is stating the sweetness of the full and free pardon of God. Verse 9, Does this blessedness then come upon the circumcised only, or upon the uncircumcised also? For we say that faith was accounted to Abraham for righteousness. The idea may still lurk in some of the minds of Jews that the chosen people had a corner on God's justification, that only those who were circumcised could be justified. Paul turns again to the experience of Abraham to show that this is not so. Paul poses the question, is righteousness imputed to believing Jews only or to believing Gentiles as well? The fact that Abraham was used as an example might seem to suggest that it was only to the Jews. But verse 10 then says, How then was it accounted? While he was circumcised or uncircumcised? Not while circumcised, but while uncircumcised. Here Paul centers on a historical fact that most of us would never have noticed. Paul shows that Abraham was justified before he was ever circumcised. Genesis 17, 24 says, Abraham was 99 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. If the father of the nation of Israel could be justified, justified while he was still uncircumcised, then the question arises, why can't others who are not circumcised be justified? See, in a very real sense, Abraham was justified while still a, on Gentile ground. In other words, he was not in the promised land when he was circumcised. And this leaves the door wide open for Gentiles, non-Jews, to be justified entirely apart from circumcision. Paul goes on to say in verse 11, And he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of faith which he had while still uncircumcised that he might be the father of all those who believe, though they are uncircumcised, that righteousness might be imputed to them also. See, circumcision was not the instrumental instrument that caused Abraham's justification. It was merely an outward sign in the flesh that he had been justified by faith. In other words, we're not saved by water baptism, but water baptism is an outward sign of an inward change. Basically, circumcision was the external token of the covenant between God and the people of Israel. Here, its meaning is expanded to indicate the righteousness which God imputed to Abraham through faith. In addition to being a sign, Paul says circumcision was a 
seal. A seal authenticates, it confirms, it certifies or guarantees the genuineness of which is signified. I spoke of this several lessons back where a king would make a declaration, roll up the scroll, put melted wax on it, then apply the signet, the seal of his ring. This seal signified the guarantee, the, the, the confirmation of its genuineness. The act of circumcision confirmed to Abraham that he was regarded and treated by God as righteous through faith. Because Abraham was justified before he was circumcised, he can be the father of other uncircumcised people. That is, of believing Gentiles also. They can be justified the same way as Abraham was by faith. When it says that Abraham is the father of believing Gentiles, there is no thought of physical descent. It simply means that these believers are his children because they imitate his faith. They are not his children by birth, but by following him as their pattern or example. I've shared with my testimony before, and I won't go into it because of sake of time, that I was raised by my uncle that was the brother of my stepdad, so he was no blood relation. But many of the things that I do, many of the attributes that I have come from my father, Jerry, who is of no blood relation. So just as the Gentiles can follow Abraham by faith, they're not Jews. They're not, they're, they're not Abraham's descendants by birth, but by his, they're his descendants by faith. The Israel of God is composed of those Jews who accept Jesus, the Messiah, as their Lord and Savior. It does not say that the Gentiles become the Israel of God. Nowhere does we find this teaching in the Bible. Verse 12 of Romans chapter 4 says, And the father of circumcision to those who not only are of the circumcision, but who also walk in the steps of faith, which our father Abraham, our father Abraham, had while still uncircumcised. Abraham received the sign of circumcision for another reason also, that he might be the father of the Jews who are not only circumcised, but also follow his footsteps in a path of faith, the kind of faith which he had while still uncircumcised. There's a difference between being Abraham's descendants and being Abraham's children. Jesus said in John chapter 8, verse 37 and 39, I know that you're Abraham's descendants, but you seek to kill me because my word has no place in you. I speak what I have seen with my father, and you do what you have seen with your father. They answered and said to him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would do the works of Abraham. 
So Paul thus insists that physical circumcision is not what counts. There must be faith in the living God. Those of the circumcision who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ are the true Israel of God. To summarize, there was a time in Abraham's life when he had faith and was still uncircumcised, and another time when he had faith and was circumcised. Paul sees this fact that both believing Gentiles and believing Jews can claim Abraham as their father and can identify with him as his children. Why? Because of faith, not works. Father, we thank you again for your word. I thank you for this teaching. I thank you for the opportunities that you give me to teach your word. And I pray, Lord God, that all that hear it may have ears to hear, eyes to see, and a heart to receive what the Spirit of the Lord is speaking to them. If there's any that are listening that do not know Jesus Christ as their personal Lord and Savior, I pray that they would cry out to you today, repent of their sins, and ask you to be Lord of their life. If there's anybody out there that made a decision today, we would love to hear from you. Please email us at admin at lifechurchga.com and let us know that you made a decision today to follow Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Thank you for listening. If you don't have a home church, we would love to have you here at Life Church, 100 Todd Road, Perry, Georgia. 